Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I am your host, John Ebersole, and I am delighted to be joined by the poet Adam Fitzgerald. Adam was born in Staten Island and raised in New Jersey. He attended Boston College and Columbia University and he is founding editor of the poetry journal Maggie. He currently teaches creative writing and literature at Rutgers and the New School, and he currently lives in New York City. Adam Fitzgerald, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be talking over, I guess they're not the radio waves, but they're the, the podcast waves. <laughs> they, um, they are waves, though, for sure. Hey, I got to ask you, um, I prom, I usually don't do this, but I promised Don Share of Poetry Magazine that I would ask you about the poems that you have appearing soon in poetry. Is, is that true, that you have some poems coming out there? Yes. I, I'm, I'm very um, happy about three poems I have. They're all new, um, obviously. Um, uh, I think the titles are Poem with Accidental Memory, uh, a poem called George Washington, and a poem called Time After Time, which was actually inspired by um, Timothy Donnelly, uh, was asking different poets, since it's the 30th anniversary of um, Cindy Lauper's album that that song appears on um, <laughs> to um, everyone he wanted to write a, a poem based upon the title um, from that album. So oh, I, think the, I think the album is she's so, you know, you have to bear in mind, I'm not a, I'm not a Cindy Lauper fanatic, sadly, um, but I, I, you know, I, I know some of her songs and I love them very much. Um, but I guess the, the album is called uh, She's So Unusual. And so one of the songs on it that I've always loved, especially for its music video, is Time After Time. So he kind of, he, he wrote to ten different poets and uh, or nine different poets, and he kind of, you know, said, why don't you take this song, or are you interested in doing this? And um, I uh, I said, oh, Time After Time will definitely be the one for me. So I, I not knowing the lyrics to it very well, I kept on replaying the song at a very low volume on my computer. Mm-hmm. And what what phenomenon that I think we all do is you kind of you process the song and you kind of sing along without really knowing what you're saying. Yeah. And what I would what I did is I tried to almost um homophonically write the lyrics that I thought I might have been hearing. Um <laughs> but I purposely kind of played it at such a low volume that I kind of crazily just had to make up whatever I thought the lines were um, again and again and again. So, um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And did Don Cher know this, these procedures you were taking? Uh, I, I don't know if he does, but uh, I, I guess he, he liked the results. But the, the, the poem does have a, um, uh, I get it, you know, a subtitle or whatever that says um, – after Cindy Lauper, so yeah, I was going to ask you about that because a lot of your poems in um, the late parade, you know, attribute a lot of inspiration from other work and stuff. Is there kind of you know? I never thought about it, but you know, a lot of poets are you know, a lot of poets just kind of you know derive a lot of things from other work. Uh, is there is there some ethical standard about how much? Uh, we poets like need to mention where we get stuff from because some things will say that uh, you know we'll say oh this is indebted to and then something a little more uh, uh, just a more direct is like this has been appropriated or this has been altered um, you know is that something like <laughs> what, what's your thought about like having to say that is that just like kind of a kind of an out of respect kind of thing or that it leads the reader like breadcrumbs back to a source that you might want them to check out anyway? Yeah, I think it's more, I mean, I think teach, teach poet is different. Um, for me, it was certainly about um, wanting kind of to lead a breadcrumb trail. 
Yeah. Um, you know, my publisher wanted me to meet a certain page count, and I figured, oh, well, the first thing I can do um, <laughs> is, you know, add some notes at the back of the book. And then, of course, the notes became so ridiculously involved and detailed. Yes. And um, it almost became an absurdity to me to um, to start listing or not listing different references. Right. Um, and I just kind of allowed myself to go with it, realizing that, um, you know, nearly all of the 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 references I, I mention or talk about are genuinely elements of the kind of the process of how those poems came about. But um, I think... Um, I think at the same time, it's kind of a way of um, controlling the context of how your work might be received, mm-hmm. or at least influencing or manipulating that process for the reader. Because, um, you know, there's as many things that maybe I didn't include um, right. as I did. Um, now, I'm, I'm not necessarily a poet that um, wildly reproduces... Um, uh, other people's work without altering it in some way. Uh, though obviously that is as I think today legitimate and poetic practice as anything else. Um, and, you know, obviously with um, the grand attention conceptualism and um, just, you know, I think we're all living in this kind of echo chamber of appropriation and, and stealing and crediting and, yeah. um it, to what degree is you know you're saying to what degree is um, is it is it about ethics or is it about um, kind of just uh, distraction or evasion? Um, I don't know, uh, but it's it's definitely a good question. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, <clears throat> you know like a goldsmith. I was just reading through him recently, and he said like I don't know, he made some claim like you know what we have enough text. You know, I mean it was a radical kind of. <laughs> like uh, claim, but he's like, you know what? We got enough text. We're good to go. Let's just kind of reuse what we got. And I don't think you're saying that at all. But yeah, it is weird. Like I like what you said because we're all kind of drawing influences in our poems. It's like, well, where do I stop attributing? Like you know, like uh, well, this was sort of inspired by my reading, but I didn't like really take anything. So I don't know. I think that's a and always a, just kind of interesting to me. And I wonder if readers take kind of take the I wonder how I don't know I always wonder like how readers take the idea of appropriate like if they you know if they read through your book and then suddenly like oh wow this has all been like you know a lot of it's you know I don't know like there's this romantic idea of like the purity of just like oh the poet but I guess that's just kind of like not even historically accurate anyway because all poets have been kind of borrowing little things here and there from everyone um, I wanted to ask you before we get into the book which I think I described in an email to you as a berserk love song, and I'm totally sickened by that. Um, I want to. I don't know. I welcome that. <laughs> oh, it really, it really is. It, it's. I don't know where it is. It's interesting because the way you described the Cindy Lauper kind of procedure of writing that, like, I sometimes get the sense that uh, the page, like just the physical page, is almost sometimes inadequate to the energy you seem to be trying to put on it. Like, so I could see where, where the, just the physicality of the page and jumping out into like a tad procedural, something there or something conceptual there kind of is a matter of disposition for you. Um, I've always kind of wondered that about too, about poets who seem to, are very steeped in kind of these kind of artistic practices that go beyond just writing, but then kind of uh, apply those things into their writing. Uh, I don't know if it's dispositional, like uh, maybe there's just some lyric poets that just are satisfied with not doing that. I don't know. Um, But I want to back up. You were born and raised in Staten Island. Is that correct? Born but not raised. Uh, Born in Staten Island, but I, I grew up in New Jersey. Right, you grew up in New Jersey. And uh, what part of New Jersey? A town called South Brunswick, um, which is about equidistant between New Brunswick and Princeton. Yes, I, I know it. Um, I used to live in uh, New Jersey. Uh, are you familiar with Cranford at all? Yes, I am. Uh, one of my first poetry teachers, uh, Joe Weil, 
who's currently a professor at Binghamton, um, and has been a, was a huge influence and still a very dear friend on my kind of my whole creative life. He uh, he lived in Cranford until he he moved to uh, Binghamton to become a professor there. So oh, I, I know Cranford funny. pretty well. Yeah, yeah, beautiful town. It really was. It was a nice little town. Um, and when I was at Columbia, I, that's where I lived, and I was commuting all the time. It was kind of a heck of a commute. But um, so tell me about kind of growing up in Jersey. I mean, when I was in Jersey, I would tell people like I lived there, but I found it like extremely kind of like down to earth and people would think I was crazy. But I don't know. I found like the vibe there really good. Uh, what was it like growing up there? And did you have like uh, what was your family life like? Did you have uh, brothers or sisters or anything? I had an older brother. Um, I I think I can I think that I had a pretty happy childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it is the the I kind of formulate this simply, but I think for a long time you don't really assume that where you come from or where you grew up um, based upon what kind of a writer you are or what kind of a poet you are might have that much of an influence on your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly know that New Jersey was something that didn't seem to me self-consciously anything. Um, it didn't seem interesting. It didn't seem not interesting. It just seemed like home. And so for me, it was kind of this background scrim um, that I just wanted to uh, kind of replace or trade in or outgrow. Um, and it isn't, it hasn't been really until lately where I've been living in the city for, um, uh, at least, I guess now, um, almost four years. And before that, Boston and then Hudson, New York. Um, and I've, I've, you know, I visit home where my family still lives there. And just over Thanksgiving, I kind of, went frequented some of the malls that I spent a lot of my time there with, you know, going with my family or friends. And I started to realize how much New Jersey has been such a kind of shaping influence on me. And I think it's one of those things that you can only really understand to the degree that you're away from it or you're, it's, it's, it's the past. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, you, you said that you felt like it was a very down-to-earth place. I feel like it's the most down-to-earth place on the whole planet. Yeah. Um, you can't get more down-to-earth. Um, and culturally is a weird word to, to to maybe think of it that way. It seems somehow artificial or, um, if not pretentious, just wrong. But, you know, in some ways, um, New Jersey feels like, um, you know, the fact that it is so close to New York and at the same time it's not New York. Yeah. Um, it has this very weird sensation of kind of, it's the place where, um, you know, New York meets the rest of the country. Um, and in some ways it kind of feels like the suburbs of New Jersey feel like the suburbs of what a suburb should mean in America. Um, but obviously that's, that's, um, that's, that's an illusion or, or something that sounds ridiculous to say. Um, but it is, you know, malls, mini malls, highways, um, and neighborhoods and developments and good schools and pollution and, um, and people forget how it's also a pretty state. Um, so, uh, I think when people think of New Jersey, they tend to think of, um, maybe, the Garden State Parkway and yeah. the fact that we have density and more super fun sites than probably anywhere else. <laughs> I, uh, I think you encapsulated Jersey pretty well there. I remember living there and I like that you said that you always felt this, the presence of New York City just looming over that place, um, <clears throat> which was in part enticing because you knew you could get to it quickly. Um but it did. It had a, I think you're right, it had a strange dynamic on the place. And then you mentioned the malls. I think I saw online you were taking pictures from Menlo Park Mall. Is that right? Yeah, I was taking pictures from Menlo, but I was also taking pictures at, at Lawrenceville. And um, 
malls recently have become so fascinating to me, I think, because they're, they've become nostalgic. I mean, we don't, in the city, I don't really visit malls, um, and I, I, I can't really think of wanting to be in one, even if, <laughs> even if, <laughs> even if I was back home and living in New Jersey, but. Yeah. Because I just, you know, because I've spent so much time there and I kind of associate them with my childhood a lot, um, going back to them and, and kind of realizing, oh, this is what people did before the internet. Um, yeah. It kind of really taught something with me. And uh, recently someone posted something online about a photographer who has published this book of kind of candid photographs that he took throughout the 1980s. Of, I saw that. I saw that. That was crazy, right? And it was just absolutely, I can't explain it. It was absolutely riveting. It was. There was something about... <laughs> There was something about seeing um, a picture of someone in 1980s fashion walking in and out of a Spencer's Gifts that yeah. almost felt to me like um, a close-up of the Parthenon. I, I, don't, I don't know how to say No, I think that's perfect because I just <clears> – <throat> I want to kind of – Jump off that point you're talking about. I, um, this is going to sound really bizarre, but I run this writing group for very elderly nuns. <laughs> Don't ask me to explain. Wow. <laughs> it's, I'm not even kidding. And I met with one of them yesterday and she wrote this little piece about, uh, she grew up in Philly and the Sears Roebuck building was like this visual marker to where in proximity to where her home was. And so over and over throughout her childhood, she would see the Sears Roebuck uh, building. And then one day without warning, it was torn completely down and how her sense of where her home was, was completely disruptive. But I was thinking too, while she was talking about it, because another sister was there and they had this little back and forth about Sears. And, and they, and the recollection they were having about this little department store was one that was not cynical, that it was one of like a great remembrance of it. And they, like their memory of it was not clouded by phrases like late capitalism or, you know, consumerism and just like, you know, you know, just that whole kind of culture where like I think a lot of people wrestle with on a daily basis that we're constantly being uh, asked to part with our money for things we don't need. And here were these older ladies just sitting there talking about Sears as something that completely a part of the texture of their life in which uh, textured enough in which me genuine human meaning could adhere to it. And yet at the same time, it was just a department store. It was something like cropped up by our economy. And yet they were having such visceral identifications with it. And when you were talking about kind of the mall for you, when you were talking about the Menlo Park mall and, and then seeing those photographs from the past, how, you know, they there was a like I don't know like an innocence to like maybe it was like a pre-internet thing, but like yeah. not this like dark cynicism about consumerism. Like the mall was just a place, you know. Like it was just not like there wasn't something sinister about it. It was like you know I mean it is a social space in which no political speech is allowed really. But you know like I don't know your your rendering of the mall had a hint of the same innocence those sisters were talking about the Sears. And uh, do you think people's, like, attitudes about, like, this consumerism thing is, have changed? Yeah, it has. And I think what's, what's um, um, perhaps misleading or deceptive about it is that I think sometimes people feel like they can discuss or think about consumerism um almost as if they could, like, isolate oxygen as an element of of, of every other compound that, yeah. that makes up, I mean, I, I don't know, chemistry, I, or maybe I mean hydrogen, but, you know, what it means to be a consumer is um, so intricate and wedded to everything that we do in this culture, whether we're shopping or not, and um, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that I think people shouldn't be critical or cynical about um, different spaces and yeah. who's controlling those spaces and what is allowed or not allowed or kind of what are the expectations. But um, 
you know, if you live in America, if you, um, if you produce and you buy and you shop and you, you browse, um, you, these are kind of very fundamental, they're kind of what it means to be alive. Um, and they end up kind of fusing with, um, uh, um, I, I guess I have nothing more interesting to say about it, but it, it just feels to me so intricate. Yeah, no, I think what you're saying... Everything. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm kind of catching on to what you're saying is that we can't sit there and divorce our own personal narratives and that we have genu- we have genuine experience and emotion that are that are fundamental to the way we see ourselves and the stories we tell ourselves and those stories happen to happen in very con- you know capitalist or consumerist spaces and like Absolutely. you can be in a mall and ha- and have your first kiss with someone uh just because you're in a mall and I think it's. I think you're right to say it. it's hard to like. Sometimes we want to tease out like, "Oh, malls suck," you know. Or, but actually, we can't escape that we have lived our meaningful lives in these spaces. Yeah, you can be in a mall and have your first cinnamon with somebody. Um, <laughs> it's uh, those are those are divine experiences. I know. Isn't that crazy? But we're like, do you think there's like a shame or guilt that this is the the stage in which some of the some of those little signposts in our memories happen, or do you think we can like embrace it? I mean, it's so easy to like to single single out consumerism and just be like, oh, it's it's just spiritually crushing. But it's like, hey, it's also where we like it's also where we live our lives every day. And I always find that I think I mean we've talked about it a lot, but that intersection of meaningfulness with the intellectual knowledge of like, wow, this is a giant crazy system that is doing all kinds of nefarious things to human beings across the globe. Uh, it's very, I think it's like a, you know, right at home. yeah, it's really like a conundrum of being an American in many ways. It's, it's like, how can I live a meaningful life in, in a, on a stage that I didn't help build or I don't know. I think we've, I think we've kind of fleshed out this, this uh, kind of strange contradiction to the American identity, but it's interesting. I think it affects uh, a lot of poets and uh, and different in different ways. So you're growing up in Jersey, um, and you when you're in high school. When did where where does where can we situate when poetry like really kind of latched on to you? Was that in high school, middle school, or where can you pinpoint that? Well, I can remember writing poems in as early as fourth or fifth grade and kind of always thinking I wanted to be either an actor or a writer. But in high school, um, I definitely kind of um, was bit by the writing bug. And I um, I took a creative writing class, and a student there told me about this program in uh, that the, the county paid for, and that's why they didn't, I guess, really advertise it too well, um, where you could apply to leave your regular high school one day a week and meet up at this community center and meet up with other um, artists in your discipline. Um, you know, they had dance, they had music, they had jazz, they had um, uh, lots of different things, painting. And there was one for poetry, and so I auditioned for this program, and I I got in, and I was able to um, leave my school my senior year one day a week to um, go study poetry with a professional poet and, and kind of meet other people my age who were interested in poetry. And that was, I felt like, a very decisive um, experience in my life because um, I was around people who were kind of like-minded and... Um, even if we weren't very well read, we were we were very hungry to be so. Yeah, that's um, really incredible that they offered that. Um, so when you uh, when you graduate from high school, you went to Boston University, was it? Boston College as an undergraduate. And oh man, I, I probably just later. insulted you, didn't I? Uh, no, no, not at all. I, I went to BU um, uh, I, lovingly um, for a master's afterwards, but. Um, 
Maybe that's what I was All thinking right. of. Yeah, so you did your undergraduate at Boston College and then Boston University. That's what I'm actually thinking. So what was your time? Uh, well, one, what drew you clearly uh, to Boston? And what was your kind of, you know, how was your undergraduate experience? Um, it was good. I, I, what drew me there was the fact that I accidentally got accepted. <laughs> and I, 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 uh, followed up on that offer to a good school. Um, uh, and I, when I was there, I met, um, incredible professors, um, Paul Mariani, who's a noted American poet and scholar and biographer. Yeah. Uh, and just great lover and teacher of, uh, English and American poetry and, um, very literary and, um, and, and others, uh, including, uh, a professor named Tom Epstein, who, um, you know, spoke six or seven different languages and, um, knew Russian literature, German literature, um, inside and out. And, um, that was just incredible to, to kind of be exposed to people who, had kind of a lifelong devotion to um, to this art that I wanted to kind of obsess over, get involved with, and somehow do something with. Yeah, did you get a sense then uh, about your own sensibilities as a poet? Were you starting to get blown away by some poets, and you didn't read other poets? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think my my I always wanted. I think my initial disposition was always towards. Um, I wanted a kind of heightened language, something grandiose, mm-hmm. something um, that just kind of felt like a altered state of being or consciousness. And um, I was really drawn to kind of art that just felt completely different from, from who I was and what I had experienced. And so when I, I began reading Yeats um, and kind of just, through the luck of the draw because I had done a presentation on the second coming in high school and I enjoyed it. Um, and so I started reading his collected poems. I started reading his plays. I read a biography about him by Richard Allman, which is a classic. Mm-hmm. And um, I started reading Harold Bloom's monograph on Yeats. Mm-hmm. And um, Bloom is a great, um, I think he's a, he's a great person to read at any age, but he's particularly great if you're young and you're trying to be exposed to um where, how you can kind of flesh out or carve a sensibility for yourself. Yeah. Um, because he's, he's such a kind of great intertextual mind and obsessive. And so from that point, I could kind of, you know, discover Keats and Dickinson and Hart Crane. And, um, these are people that just, um, meant everything to me and kind of still do. Yeah, I was just talking to Angie Malenko the last interview I did, and we were talking about that kind of uh, tension between the plain spoken vernacular, the colloquial versus, you know, that kind of more uh, the rhetoric with voltage and and more baroque. Uh, do you have any like, you know, I mean, is there? I guess it is a sensibility, but I was kind of thinking because I have I'm sympathetic to. Your, your sensibility in the sense that like, I want language to kind of like charge me out of the ordinary, um, where there's kind of like this, uh, also a counter idea that like, you know, that language should be, should be, uh, you know, completely kind of talking to the reader in a way that the reader is okay with uh, on the street level. Um, do you just kind of, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Or is it just a matter of like, hey, I knew what direction I was moving in with that. Well, I, I think I definitely was was following something that I just had in me, maybe. But I know one of the first classes I took was a, uh, a graduate seminar, actually, that Mariani taught on Stevens and Williams. Mm-hmm. And what a great pairing in American poetry to kind of see these, these very different mm-hmm. modes, the kind of the abstract and the particular, the vernacular, yeah. the rhetorical. And, um, you know, I, I, I just found myself kind of frustratedly un, uninspired by much of Williams yeah. and um, being kind of young and, and hot-headed and um, narrow-minded. 
Um, and I think there's a kind of necessary narrowness in artists almost always, but particularly when you're young and you're trying to look for permission to do what you don't even know what it is you want to do yet. Um, so I, I just, you know, I, Stevens was kind of, um, um, it, it felt, that felt like home. Yeah. Um, not because, and that sounds, uh, just, it just felt like that's what I, I guess I had always thought I had wanted a poem to be like. Exactly. Um, and, but, you know, as I've, as I've kind of hopefully grown and expanded my taste and become a lot more Catholic and sympathetic and, and kind of, um, contrapuntal enough where I can kind of, um, become interested in what poets are doing, especially because they're not something that I particularly feel drawn to innately. Um, you know, I'm fully aware of, of the worthiness and, and, um, the seriousness of, of that aesthetic that, that Williams is in one way indic- indicative of, you know, and it wasn't until really I had read through, um, James Schuyler's work, which I love, that I realized how, you know, you know, I mean, Williams influenced and irrigated so much of 20th century American poetry. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that was just a concrete example for me of, you know, there wouldn't have been the Schuyler that I love without, um, you know, kind of Williams working in those kind of short, um, kind of very observational based poems. Yeah. No, I think you put that great. And I wanted to, cause I wanted to, I'm kind of jumping forward to your, uh, your founding of Maggie. Did you find, you know, it's interesting that you said maybe it's a youthful quality when you just kind of like are looking for that identity and you latch on to what feels exactly right to you. Um, and then kind of swing around later to work that's actually not like yours and be able to appreciate it. Did that come about with editorial work or do you just attribute that to, to just kind of like uh, kind of growing up? I, I think I kind of contributed to growing up and I, I think it's definitely a prerequisite to be uh, a decent or worthwhile or even I dare say honest editor. Yeah. You, you, um, you want to be able to know the difference between what you're looking for and what uh, what other people might also be looking for. Um, and I think um, as you kind of, at least for me in my experience, as I felt more secure with my preferences and my tastes and kind of understanding how they fit into things, I also grew more charitable to other people's preferences and tastes because I didn't feel like I had to... Um, uh, I well, to understand what I was after. Right, you didn't use antagonism towards other styles to have to understand your own. You already understood your own, and therefore, what other style would be threatening when you are interdirected like that? So I wanted to ask you about Boston University because I've, can you tell me the the name of that master's program you were involved with there? Yeah, it's an editorial institute that um, Christopher Rick started. With, Did you tell uh, me about Archie that? Burnett. Yeah, I, I think Rick felt, you know, during the culture wars of the 80s and the 90s that, um, you know, the new criticism and kind of attentive, non-theory-based um, appreciation of poetry that he has always, that he had come out of and was interested in fostering as a critic himself he felt that that was really kind of being lost in the English department that he was a part of. Right. And I think he felt that by, you know, he had always been an editor, and I think he he even said that when he was, you know, at Cambridge, um, some teacher had said to him, you know, you're brilliant but unsound. Hmm. And um, what could be a better way to maybe get your feet on, on solid ground and to kind of become a very meticulous um, preserver and um, uh, careful editor of, of text. And that, um, you know, and Rich's kind of slogan that he would always say is that, you know, we'll always need dependable texts of, of, of good books. Um, and, you know, it's kind of editing is this interesting process where you, you suddenly realize how much you take for granted. You know, you, you pick up a copy of Shakespeare and you, you think you're, you you hope you assume that you know you're reading Shakespeare as he intended to be read, <laughs> right. and, 
you know, you realize a great play like King Lear is a kind of, um, it's an interstitial of, you know, different folios and quartos, and it's a composite text um, that relies upon kind of editorial decisions. Uh, ditto Emily Dickinson, ditto, you know, in to some extent, every writer you read, um, yeah. you know, uh, and so it's, you know, you realize that there's always someone mediating your experience of what you enjoy or don't. Um, and that was something that I thought was something that I, 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 I hope and I aspire to be a great editor of poetry, uh, as a teacher in the classroom. And I, um, had the same hopes to be a, you know, a kind of, um, eclectic and, um, uh, attentive editor as, uh, as someone who runs a literary journal, but when it comes to the very specific skill sets that Rick's and the Editorial Institute were kind of building and teaching, um, where it comes to, you know, coming up with critical apparatus and, um, textual variance mm-hmm. and, um, that kind of, you know, microscopic yeah. X-ray vision, it's not something that I am either very good at or feel very compelled to uh, spend my energies on. Yeah, that's really so interesting. It, it was kind of, it was something where I, it was a missing hand, so to speak, that I wanted to, to maybe learn, but it wasn't something that I felt drawn to um, necessarily pursue or, you know, become a textual scholar, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. Your time in Boston, it sounds like you spent several years there. Uh, can you attribute, because we were talking about place earlier and home, what, how, what was Boston like for you? Um, and how do you think it kind of did it shape uh, kind of your, I don't know, how what, what was your uh, life like in Boston? Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to sum, it's hard to sum up. Uh, it was, it was, you know, it was, from, you know, basically age 17 to 23 or 24, um, I spent most of my time in Boston, and in some ways those are probably or will be the most formative years of my life. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I, I don't know if I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I'm, I'm happy that I don't live in Boston anymore. I find it a little too... Um, it's not diverse enough for me um, in terms of uh, whether it's ethnically diverse or um, aesthetically diverse or um, just uh, <laughs> even when it comes to weather climate, I don't think it's diverse <laughs> enough. Um, but so it's something that I uh, I have I have no, nothing bad to say about it, but it's also something that I, I don't necessarily miss or long for in any way. Yeah. Um, and when you got but, done with, uh, sorry to cut you off, when you got done with all of your schooling in Boston, did you immediately go, was it a no-brainer to go for the MFA and, uh, or did you take some time off? And, and how many did, how many of the poems, if any, that are in the late parade came out of that Boston period? Um, well, good question. Um, between so I graduated in 2005 from from Boston College. I went back home to New Jersey for about six or eight months. I was working in a bookstore, and then I went to go see John Ashbery give a reading um, in 2006. And I met him, and I stayed in touch with him. And that summer, I ended up um, taking a job with him mm-hmm. as a kind of intern, houseboy, archivist. Right. Um, and uh, I did that for a year. And that must have been pretty. Re- re- did you see that coming at all? <laughs> no, I didn't see that coming. But it was um, it was a great, great, um, hugely. Um, um, I feel like I'm building a resume here. It was hugely formative the experience, yeah. um, but it was. Um, and John was and is a hero of mine. Um, so that that meant a lot to me, just at all levels. Um, but when I wanted to come up with something to do for a graduate program uh, with uh, the Editorial Institute, I could edit these two unpublished 
then um, a thesis he did on uh, at Columbia. And so that was that was something that I could do. Um, there is one poem in the book um, that I'm actually going to read later. Um, that is from my undergraduate years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it would have been the year I graduated called The Relay Station. Yeah. And that's one of the first poems um, that I can really remember writing and feeling. Um, not that there weren't other poems of mine that I really liked, but it was kind of pointing in a new direction yeah. for me um, aesthetically because a lot of what you, we've been talking about, this tension between the colloquial and the rhetorical and um, uh, kind of kind of more alienating, um, chewy kind of language experience reading or, or kind of more domestic or interior or quieted autobiographical mood, I felt that this poem kind of started to show that maybe these things weren't so much binary or opposites, but they were something that you could um, integrate and kind of pedal both sides of the bicycle at the same time. Definitely. Um, and so that's that's one of the earliest, that is the earliest poem in the book. Um, and in terms of my time afterwards, before I went to Columbia for my MFA, I'm not sure if there are any poems um, from that time in the book. But I, I know after I finished my master's, I had to decide whether or not I wanted to go on to do a PhD in editing. And yeah. uh, a friend of mine, a poet and artist, um, Simone Carney, she was applying to Hunter, and so I said, oh, well, she's going to leave Boston and kind of go do an MFA. Maybe I should just apply just for the sake of it. And I applied to Columbia, and I got in, and I said, you know what? That's time to go do that. Because um, yeah. I, I kind of I wanted to spend time kind of on my own work. Yeah. And um, many of the poems in the book, um, I would say more than half, but definitely not all, are, are poems that I wrote and have been revising um, during my essay there. Why do you think that was such a fruitful time for you? Because I know some students in the MFA, uh, you know, they kind of abandon the work that they do in the MFA. Other people, their thesis is highly part of their first manuscript. Uh, what do you attribute that production to? I think uh, a lot of things. I think I... Um, I think moving to the city tremendously energized me. I think the fact that, um, you know, there's a community of other people um, who are trying to go about and do the same thing um, kind of gave, gave a kind of place and ritual to writing, revising, going to readings, reading your work, sharing your work. Um, so it kind of, it, it, gave me kind of a contour to my focus. Um, And then in terms of the poems just kind of being survivable in any way, um, I think, you know, revision for me was always something that did not come natural. It was something that I um, I kind of, you know, kind of treated the way that some of my students would treat a kind of composition paper. You know, you, you do it in a burst quickly mm-hmm. um, and then you you think of revision as a kind of like just cleaning the table and just making sure you've spelt everything right and you know which means of course getting spell check and then printing out and turning mm-hmm. it in but um, when I went to going through the process at Columbia of not only having the workshops which I had done as an undergraduate but um, having a kind of thesis workshop where you were kind of looking and living with these poems um, kind of, and then just the example of my teachers, you know, Timothy Donnelly, Mark Strand, Richard Howard, they're very meticulous and scrupulous readers of poems, um, and they, they have high aesthetic standards for, you know, what they think means a finished or abandonable poem. Yeah. And, um, trying to kind of internalize that, that, um, that kind of rigor. And so, and then the funny thing is that even all the poems um, that were written during that period that made their way in the book, you know, even after I turned in my thesis, um, the poems are in wildly, um, they're in wildly different form. Yeah. Um, 
they're um, they're they've just been you know I think I did as much revision to those poems after I graduated as I did while I was there. Yeah, before we jump into the book, you know, the book has gotten an extraordinary amount of attention, and I'm just wondering how Adam Fitzgerald, the person, kind of rolled with that. Um, you know, you've kind of been put in this lineage, uh, whether against your will or not, I have no idea, with kind of like John and Timothy and yourself, and kind of this slow kind of persona has built and I'm wondering just it seems like an overwhelming amount of attention for a poet and of course a poet I imagine that welcomes it but I'm just uh, curious now that the book's been out a while there's been plenty of reviews you know kind of looking back now um, you know what has that experience been like on you know just that kind of uh, you know that spotlight on your work but also that does it cause any pressures and the aftershock of that? I think that I feel tremendously lucky. I feel tremendously thankful that anyone would want to publish it, read it, review it, love it, hate it. I I, I just genuinely feel really lucky, especially because I'm a poet. And I I understand that there's a very small commercial platform that um, takes any interest in, in spending time with poetry. Um, And there's a very loyal, intense, um, in some ways, I think the, the most um, committed readership for poetry, but it's also, again, it's, it's a small, relatively speaking, it's a small kind of readership that you're dealing with. So at the same time that I feel so grateful and, and honored, um, I can also very easily put it into perspective, and it, it doesn't feel overwhelming or too surreal because... I think the the fact that my book was reviewed in the New York Times, um, which obviously was uh, tremendously uh, gratifying and that it was reviewed favorably, it's also something that I know probably has exists in some ways more in the perception of other people thinking about my work and myself right. than it can really for me. Um, because, you know... Um, I mean, after all, you're just you're you're Adam, and you wake up yeah, every day. And I mean, like, you know what I mean, like yeah. But it doesn't. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. I certainly don't feel. Um, uh, I certainly don't feel famous. I certainly don't feel. Um, uh, um, uh, I, I don't feel anything. I think much different than exactly what's happened. Um, and uh, it's just kind of a tricky place because on one hand you can you can sound kind of uh, hollowly modest, right. and on the other hand you can sound um, kind of uh, blindly arrogant. And um, I I don't find either option really um, <laughs> uh, too appealing. Um, but I, I'm very grateful for anyone who's been interested in the book, and I'm I think. My editor and the people at Wright and Norton who designed it and worked on it and promoted it, they did an unbelievable job on their part um, that makes makes me look good. Um, and uh, I feel very grateful for that kind of dedication. Yeah, it's really... I mean, it's, I, I sound like Miss America now. It's kind of so gross. I'm kind of sick and... I'm going to come in with some, like, complex uh, political problem that no one can answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, hey, you know, it is a, it's just a gorgeous book as an object. Uh, even the cover has a texture to it that almost feels edible. <laughs> it's really Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. It is really crazy. Uh, and just the beautiful colors. Um, so why don't we uh, – let's jump into this book um, and uh, read a couple poems out of it. Sure. Um, let's go ahead and the, you mentioned the relay station earlier. Why don't we start with that? Sure. The relay station. We sleep in private homes now, forgetting the laundry or whomever's name. Snow comes in blankets. Nothing about the outdoors being lonely except it's the outdoors. The same ones are opened. 
piles of ghosted marginalia end up at the end where they belong. A chord or two's tangled, song strift. Soon, even sooner than that, what's tucked inside isn't dark in the sense of darkness, but resting like the uncle we love's hats. Wide tracks of things we've thought about cool into a freeze, waiting to be tracked down one day until a lone key is minted. I or someone else hums, tissues are collected, dust settles. Our trust is newly renovated like faucets since fate set that way, and today, never happening, feels no more an imposter than the rest of us, something not to be looked on as anything but what fell between a casualty of sorts, woods or wares as it were. News comes, furniture plays furniture. If what we exchange rumbles in too much quiet, then it means this for you. Afternoon grievances or friends to be arranged, tea steam purring from the kettle almost. All right, Adam, thank you so much. That was great. You know, when I first read this poem, I just wrote, at first, and I don't think it was the, a good, like the most accurate first reaction, but I just wrote, strung out. <laughs> and not in a, not in a context of drug use, but in a, they're seeing, and then what, what I was really kind of thinking I was getting at was this, that quiet sort of sadness in the, in the routine of things. Um, and that the, it's interesting how, well, I mean, the one, the music of it kind of attributes, contributes to that, but, uh, the way the snow comes and then the news comes and things like whoever's name and, and just this kind of accumulation of dust settling, uh, feels no more an imposter. There's this kind of just eerie, quietness to this uh to this poem that is really really incredible and and then to end on uh tea steam purring from the kettle almost there's this kind of domesticated uh you know the scenes of domestication that are just haunted almost at every turn it's really a really beautiful poem and uh and we talked about this poem a little bit earlier that you know, for John Ashbery, when, and it sounds like a weird question, but when we, uh, as poets, say a poem is for someone, you know, is that typically arrived at, you think, after the poem's been written? You know, uh, when we, uh, yes. I'm always curious about what we mean when we say a poem is for someone. I think for me it's kind of, um, it's definitely after the fact, and it's, it's, it's maybe it's a, it's a gesture of, it's hopefully a, a you know a gesture of gift or goodwill that maybe you're just saying it to yourself, but somehow it feels right. Um, yeah. And this was like I said, uh, one of the this was a poem that I I remember writing after I had first started reading John's work, and um, I felt like um, the example of John had allowed me to. Um, find a different voice that maybe was the voice I wanted. Um, and and so I kind of wanted to honor that, um, not just in this poem, but also, you know, just uh, his example as an artist and his generosity as, as a friend and mentor. Yeah. Yeah, it is almost like, I think some people read those poems that are to somebody as if it's specifically like... I don't know. Like I like the idea that it's it comes afterwards who the who the receiver. Yeah, I think that if I can be very semantic about it, I think two and four are very different. Um, Precisely, yeah. Um, very different other prepositions. I mean, this is embarrassing. <laughs> don't go there. Don't do it because well, people who have dealt with language all their lives and who it comes easily for, you know, grammar is kind of one of those weird things. Like uh, I know when I see, I know when it, <laughs> it's like. Oh my gosh, independent clauses, you know, dependent clauses, Thomas clauses, what? Um, but it's funny that you brought up the difference between two and four because uh, the next poem I'm going to have you read is not for a shepherd, but to a shepherd. That is true. And that's on 82. Um, to a shepherd. May you have rings of coral groves and all the bread that proves man does not live on, let alone. 
May this darkness of inhuman instruments be yours, tempering a passageway through this ordinary mountain range where the mountain door dwells. In it opens all the new and old world problems. Preferably there will be respite, civilization's slop, its grand mulberry, the withering spa by the sea. May you know sprightly pickled strings that throb like gentle adversaries underneath encroaching sighs, with soft sweet splashes of blood matter and ground matter, smooth untimbered song. For always in my registering of life, someone else's, I come to a nestled ridge below a city gridded view, and dabble in thoughts that others poach unbeknownst to less literal things, like who just died. So a vague ceremony bobbles in my brain. May you have chocolates in muffled form. May you feel ecstatic and hollow-eyed for once as you plead for a microstyle of fleet-footed driving among hills, beeping a sheep-dispersing horn, checking every so often to see who's written, who's marred or married, which season ululates its high temple prayer all alone. May the garrets and flower slums contain ink and silk to last a war or two. May brute force lacking its little stupidities be like the little rain. May your shirred head still be full with sleep. Or, as the wind rips its first fuzz mane on rivers and wagons a far way off, wrapping itself into a golden ball, may you always have an elsewhere to hurry to, wave-like, unperfumed, passing. Thanks, Adam. This, I mean, this is just one of my favorite poems. It's just gorgeous. It really is. And I found it so interesting because I've been reading a lot about the pastoral tradition and to a shepherd and, and your line uh, that the shepherd would be beeping a sheep dispersing horn. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> I love it. And the chocolates in muffled form. It's really an accomplished uh, poem. It really is just beautiful. Um, what can you say about it? What was, what was this poem for you? Well, I started corresponding for about two years with a, a person who lives overseas who's actually a shepherd. Oh, um, he's also a soldier, and um, he, he had sent me even a picture of him kind of uh, herding his sheep in his uh, in his jeep, wow. and um, so that kind of supplied a little bit of the beeping of sheep dispersing horn image that you spoke about. Right. Um, and he kind of lives in a very kind of war-torn place in the world, and so... Um, this poem is a kind of more stately, a formal address um, that kind of knows that poetry might not make anything happen, but that um, almost that there's a, hopefully a certain kind of dignity in just kind of saying a prayer um, out into the world, almost as if it can kind of be a spell of, of good wishing, but at the same time, maybe it can be honest about the incongruities of of uh, a person's life or experience or what they've suffered or what they will go through or what they deserve and will never get. It is really a beautiful poem. I mean, I'm just so happy you talked about it in the way you did. When we talk, when we were thinking about the difference between the conversational and the more high rhetoric, and I noticed this, I mean, where would the high rhetoric be without adjectives? I sometimes wonder, you know, it's just, they're so wonderful. And, and, but I grew like a lot of times in my early formations as a poet, I was very much told all the time, like, oh, those adjectives. Now, adverbs, I definitely have an issue with, but, ad, but adjectives are sometimes so, so needed. Um, have you ever wrestled with this idea of using adjectives? Yeah, I mean, I'm addicted to them, obviously, um, and I, I'm indulgent, and I'm kind of, um, you know, all 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 the adjectives I could use, um, baroque or mm-hmm. or um, decadent. I mean, I'm I'm drawn to that, and hopefully, there's a, hopefully, <laughs> I can survive that. <laughs> um, I mean, I I feel like the adjectives they're the they're the they're the tissue and coloring of poetry. Um, they're kind of what gives it both its its flavor, but also its its kind of shade and and temperature. And um, I I'm 
obsessed with the, the powers of juxtaposition and the kind of um, uh, magnetism that can happen by, by putting one, for, one word in front of another. Oh, yeah, um, and I, adjectives just unlock those, uh, those portals big time. Um, so we're going to turn um, to the last poem in the book, and the title of the poem is uh, The Late Parade. Um, was there any uh, anything you wanted to say uh, before you read this? It's quite a long poem, and I like sometimes uh, poets uh, to read their long poems for us because we rarely get the opportunity to hear them. Um, is there anything you want to say before you read it? Um, no, actually, I think, uh, I think I'll just read it. All right, go for it. The Late Parade. A glitter in the dromedary dawn is cold rubles. The old cyclone boasts, come what come may, sir. Like a silly curly cue, for instance, that you called August. It, too, had a way, prescient and ponderable. A mix of corsage and assemblage, or coconut, if you can imagine it. A wax cylinder in the wind was carrying us chevalierly through the alphabets of petite longing, a gumption of restless itching. If we stop here, it's because here it's thick dusk, streaming ribbons from the sun, yellow fields of sky matriculating without thinking. Slowly, the aperture goes bronze, squinting in the marble harbor, the falling, crocheting speech. The morning buildings are air, sugared with stiff upper lip. Clipped romance butters our pockets with comic book accents, popped lingo and perfumed lint. Yesterday, the dazzlement washed us away, like laundry boats bedraggled toward a ventilated hexagon at sea, its coils and plungers, its plumber's tape amid lulling processions of joggers. One spring patios for rodeos, niggled with iodine figures, weed tapestry inside vast tuileries. But that reminds me, how exactly do words form brittle histories, rummaging the basement heap, a guttural section, suppose, or an anatomical plane, a slice of what should be and has been said but wasn't, like some yogurty radio static, giving way assuredly to sweet hosannas. We bench press archways with our eyes, recalling a time when we actually had eyes. Yes, that was eons ago gazing inside at TV bunkers as shock and awe hunkered down for supper, a roseate, ghostly assembly line, producing the bruise. I could use a good one, come to think of it. And nickeled and dimed, halter-top waters rise, areas of glint with restaurant dementias, some happenstance meant to be talked about. We'll have to let be without a doo-wop and haughty pince Alone here in the river walk, river walk, you buoy it all. You walking sick or emptier in a crowd, but not as empty as one. Amateur, I'm watching your survey shrug to the ground, dear and ruthless. The fiesta has begun, and waffling in the breeze, this is the time to reprogram an ideogram or two, slipping pants off for stoic sleepiness. Dreams have the following architecture, metallic substance, pursuant laws of mineralness, vague plunder of booty, plastic robe of pearls. Sesame pirates of our wonderfully dull childhood, where a perverted man usurps your surname and wanders the lawn, sprinkling reindeer tears. Just as to love is to doze, so what I crave is to nose about. I, however, in 17th century fashion, stare at your chaps of frolicking gold, apparel that includes a spigot, which cargoes some mumbling grudge in its full quarters to Tribeca. There we can arrange a spotted coordinate for the star, a straight path that is kindred, mortal. Now resume the pose. Walk, rub, walk. It only takes a brochure in your palms to let me see native Indians and Corpsland Africa's open gently, your cornet wrists, your marigold clumped brow. People should be able to account for something in what they desire, where they roam for air, secluded under western bandanas. This leads to reclusiveness, extreme passivity, puff ochre, and the like. General spiels of uneasiness. I should know happening to be one myself, a curmudgeon crayfish like Fantomas. A board was laid out. It had your legs on it, suspended scissor-like, 
a mode I knew from the albums. Speaking of which, one bum was overheard saying to the other, I like your bum. Light moving mumbo jumbo, really. One door slices us to the next. The tunnels funnel us into faraway space with pristine shops. You snicker to friends across absolute distance. They always ask me the fable of my life, the accurate one, replete with liquid bones to pick out or throw as testimony. I prefer sassafras to creme brulee on any given day. Brutal and cunning but unknown, I love cyclists. So a cloud curtailed me, and I awoke horizon. The result of such expressiveness cannot be denied, especially honey. Figures of rain buttressing cheeks with small change, contingencies do. And this mosaic, the Giotto Chapel, will name our stone-braced embodiment. Neither reconditioning nor resurrection needed to become the possible. You once told me, first giving up, give up what? A stripper made in toothy and caustic. Boring. We were literally boring holes in spy stations. Calling us all a pipe dream, a.k.a. yourself. A something for our lips, sandwiched in stairs, stuck in portajons. This kind of looking isn't seeing. This kind of consumption is blindness. An igloo rug. It's not enough to be relative to example and talk art for the dear and near to us. Picking up the phone one day, saying clearly but only, and. I take refuge in each skittery movement and moment I'm given when not forced to dwell on a monument. I am the last bastion afforded to a materialist state. Next to gentle gardens for a bit, we argued. Polluted scales were a kind of resolution to wrestle us from ourselves. Though I kept noticing the way our lips pinched themselves accidentally. How vanity roped around our waist, delicate and burnt. As if dread had come into the room with a waltz on our breast. At such gestured pace, you induce a sigh. Yes, you ignorant child, those fireworks were yours. This time they were. Pyrotechnics fade, experiments not talked about until today in the sky rise of cabinets and windows of papers flustered from sunlight, rise like a goth girl, costumed in hardened beeswax, whose tattoo reads, buried on the breath of dawn. Wonder needed, etoile needed, monkey brains optional. Suitors needed, comforters needed, lactose tolerance optional. Spray-painted suits, undulating lanterns, scenes of frantic night, all for a checkbook that I would seize before surrendering my love of the real. One who will be for the future, if only to turn back his long and lined head with remorse code, acknowledging acknowledgments. Like a magnet, we drifted in a boy's blink for years, not knowing we were drifting. It is always dusk here. Mechanical animals wait for us. We wait for each other. Very-eyed and bituminous, the portus of waiting and wanting, mating and praemantising. So what are you really interested in, Pythagoras? Things as they are are judgments. Careful, the truth's a pill, so chew before swallowing. Maybe it's just a trump whale effect on second thought. Even so, it is what it is. And what it is, we must swallow. And we do. We do. Adam Fitzgerald, thanks for joining me on New Books and Poetry. Thank you so much for having me. 